You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. The next programme may contain material that is distressing and listener discretion is advised. Terry was a sweet, loving, thoughtful, goofy, sometimes a little weird, uh, person who I miss desperately. When he smiled, oh, I, he would light up the room. You know, these people were just out to have a good time, and um, and this terrorist did this terrible thing. Drew was effervescent. He was super authentic. He was never afraid to be himself. And he would always say, you, you guys need to chillax. It's not that serious. It is what it is. Just breathe. Five years ago, a club at the heart of Orlando's LGBTQ plus community was at the centre of just an unimaginable attack. Breaking news alert. Good morning, I'm Nadine Giannis. We're following breaking news right now in Orange County where Orlando police have confirmed there's been a shooting in downtown Orlando at the Pulse nightclub. That's on Orange Avenue and Cayley Avenue right now. I'm Steve Denyer and this is the Pain of Pulse on Virgin Radio Pride. I remember waking up on the Sunday morning and reading reports and watching videos on Twitter that there'd been this awful attack. And the first thing I thought of was my plans for later in that day. I was due to go to the Royal Vauxhall Tavern and meet my friends and I saw these poor people and thought, do you know, this could have happened anywhere. This could have happened to me later on in the day and and could have affected my friends and it, it was devastating. Later on in that day, I did go to the Vauxhall Tavern. We had a minute's silence for all the victims in Orlando. And the day after, I joined literally thousands of people in London, Soho, and we stood there in silence. And at one point, we sang along with London's Gay Men's Chorus. And I have never felt that level of emotion in my entire life. It wasn't until about tea time that day that we started to get numbers through and that really hit home. The sheer scale of the attack, 49 innocent lives lost here. 49 people were, you know, in their place, a place that should have only meant acceptance and joy and this happened. Some of the audio you are about to hear is disturbing and includes descriptions of violence and people in distress. I'm on one, what's your emergency? We're leaving the club and then as soon as we left, gunshots were just going like crazy. 
Are you near Paul's nightclub? On the 12th of June 2016, Omar Mateen walked into Pulse nightclub and started shooting. It was 2am, last orders on drinks had just been called and 320 people were still inside. Three hours later, it was over, but it would be 24 hours before the true number of victims were known. Today we're dealing with something that we never imagined and is unimaginable. Since the last update, we have gotten better access to the building. We have cleared the building, and it is with great sadness that I share we have not 20 but 50 casualties. In addition to the shooter, there are another 53 that are hospitalized. Because of the scale of the crime, I've asked the government... That number was eventually revised down to 49 plus the attacker. It was, at the time the worst mass shooting in America's history. But to understand the extent of the tragedy, you really need to understand what Pulse nightclub was like before the attack. It was a cool place. It had a white room where there were a bunch of mirrors and this big couch that we used to take photos on. That's Sarah Grossman. She went to college in Orlando and was a Pulse regular. She told me what the club was like. There was a, uh, a darker room on the left side of the club that had um, a bar where go-go dancers would uh, do their thing and dance. And the middle room um, was the dance floor and had a stage where there would be drag performances and anything for anyone. It wasn't just a safe space, it was also a really cool space. That was the one place that I should have been able to go to hold hands with my girlfriend without getting weird stares in the streets. That was a place, it was a place where we came into ourselves, where we learned about our own community and we learned about our own relationships. And um, it was it was a safe space. And for that to be taken away is beyond devastating. By the time of the attack, Sarah had moved away to Denver, but her best friend Drew had not. We'll hear more from her later. Someone who was there that night is Amanda Grau. My conversation with Amanda includes descriptions of a terror attack that you may find disturbing. How the night started was it was actually my my dad's birthday that day. Um, And me and a friend, we went out to dinner with uh, my parents and my brother. And then when we got done, we're like, oh, we're going to go hang out. So we actually ended up going to St. Pete. And we were met up with some other friends and we were having drinks and stuff. So I just happened to go on Instagram and I saw my friend uh, Chris Sanfelice uh, with another friend posting pictures that they were at Paul. So I looked at my friend and I said, hey, I said, do you want to go? You know, he goes, oh, he goes, should we? Because it was at that point, it was like, I want to say it was like midnight or 1230. I was like, you know what? I said, let's just be spontaneous and let's just go, even though it's, you know, pretty late. So then we ended up going inside the club and we um, saw our friends and started talking to our friends. And uh, my my friend that I came with, he had asked me to uh, hold his drink because he had to use the restroom. And then as soon as I guess he had left and went to the restroom, two, three minutes later, that's when it went all downhill from there. I remember hearing like um, like poppy noises, almost like, um, like fireworks. Um, and I, I 
kind of looked around and I was like, well, you know, what is that noise? And then I looked, I finally, I, I turned around cause then I, I hear it again and it was, it was, uh, the, sh- the shooter. So at that point I threw my drinks down and on the floor and I just started running. And, uh, that's when he had shot me, um, underneath my arm. And I remember, I remember going down, <clears throat> I, I blacked out. Uh, but when I finally came to, um, and to kind of realize like, like what, what just happened. And, uh, I opened my eyes and I remember seeing, um, uh, the room smoky. Uh, it, you can smell the gunpowder. Um, I heard people screaming and yelling and, and then I kind of turned my head and that's when I saw, uh, the shooter and I realized I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I just been shot. Cause I remember like feeling underneath my arm and I just massive blood on my hand. So I ended up getting up and, um, trying to run to the, to the next room. <clears throat> and I had put my hands on the, um, on the door to go into the, to the next room, but something told me to look back. And when I looked back, I saw my friend laying there on, uh, on top of people. And I remember, uh, yelling out, uh, Chris, Chris. And, you know, he, he didn't answer, but also music was playing too. And at that time, I didn't know if maybe he was just pretending, um, to be dead, you know? Um, so I started to run towards him so I because maybe I thought I could you know pull him or save him and uh the the shooter was uh messing with his gun so I I guess it got stuck or whatever so that's how I thought I had an opportunity and then he finally I guess he was playing with it and I saw him cock it in and he was ready to point so I had to stop in my tracks and uh and turn around and, and run back to the door that I was trying to go to. And as I was going into bathroom, I also thought at the same time, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I just, I just left my friend out there, you know? And it just, until this day, I, 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 I play that over and over. Cause I just, I just wish if I, you know, what if I would have start running, you know, just a second more and maybe I could have pulled him or, or something. So I had went into the big stall and I had seen um, people. Uh, some of them were sitting down um, underneath the sink. Uh, another uh, couple were uh, sitting against the wall. And then I had uh, remember seeing um, a couple of bodies on each side of the, of the toilet. Um, I asked if everybody was okay and they said yes. A couple of people were, were shot and hurt, but they were, they were okay. And I noticed that the people uh on the by the toilet they they didn't say anything so very quickly I tried to call 911 uh just kept getting busy 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 I remember calling my mom and she answered and I said mom I said I just been shot I said please call 911 I said because I can't get through and I said and a lot of people are hurt and it's like I am too and she's you know of course 
uh, screaming and crying and asking me where I was. And I told her where. She goes, where is that? And and I told her, you know, Orlando, Orlando. And she goes, okay. And then I kind of just hung up because he was coming. So I was like, Mom, I got to (laughs) go. I remember uh, as soon as I got off the phone, maybe like a second, uh, we had the door locked, but he ended up uh, kicking it. And uh, my first instinct was to dive over the the bodies that were laying down um, by the toilet because I just didn't want them to get hurt anymore, just in case if they were, you know, pretending or what. So I remember diving over them, and that's when he had shot me in my back and my uh, my right leg and, uh, and on my ankle as well. And then uh, at that point, um, after he got done... Um, firing like kind of like in a circle uh he had left and i believe he had went to the bathroom across from us to pretty much do the same thing because you could just um hear just shot after shot after shot um and uh somebody else had ran in there and i heard him talking and then all of a sudden he did come back in and of course he shot the guy that was trying to hold the door and um I can just I remember hearing him gurgling gasping for air and then he came close to our door he didn't he didn't open it again but he came close to the door and he he had said he goes if anybody answers their phone or if I hear you know anything he goes y'all are dead I looked at everybody and I showed them my phone and I, and I kind of put my hand, uh, like, over my mouth, like, telling him to, to shush because I had it on silent. So where he couldn't hear it vibrate, nothing, because I knew, you know, I didn't realize what time it was at that time. But I just knew that we had been in that bathroom for a while. And a lot of us was losing a lot of blood. And not to mention everybody that was, you know, out outside of the bathroom, too. Um, so I had, uh, I texted my brother and, uh, cause he was texting me, my parents, a lot of people, but I just kind of stayed in contact with him. And, and I told him, I said, please, please get some help. And he says, the cops are out here. He goes, but please, he goes, tell me where you are. And I told him, I tried to describe to him. I said, you know, as soon as you walk in, just go to the left and go through that room. And we're in that bathroom. So he was trying to tell the cops and they were getting like floor plans and stuff and till this day why it took them three hours to get us because I was trapped in there for over three hours I, I will never I will never know after the attack questions were raised about why the police took so long to rescue the survivors they explained there were fears that bombs would be detonated around the club if they entered that was a false claim of Mateen's at that point Um, I had stopped texting for a minute because he had came back in and I remember him getting back on the phone, but this time I guess uh, I'm assuming a friend or whatever. And I, I remember him saying, um, if any cops, uh, come close, um, and try to come in, just go ahead and, and light up the bombs. And we were screaming and crying and telling him, please. Please don't do this. But Amanda's ordeal was nearly over. We heard a blast. 
And we started screaming because we thought it was him. And it was a blast in the other bathroom. And um, after we heard that and screaming and crying, he, he kicked the door one last time. And he fired another round going all the way around. And then uh, he had left. And I just remember hearing screaming on the outside. And I just remember just gunshots, just one after the other after the other. And then after that, then there were, a blast came in our bathroom. And again, we, we thought it was him. We didn't know. And it ended up being the police, the fire department. And I remember them saying that you guys are safe. He's dead. At that moment, I was, it was just a relief. I, you know, I tell this to people, you, you never would wish this on your worst enemy ever. What we went through that night, nobody should ever, ever go through that. No matter how much you dislike a person or whatever, not ever. It was when they say massacre, <laughs> it definitely was. There, there was bullet holes everywhere. There was blood everywhere. So many, you know, dead bodies. Is it was something that you can't, you can't even imagine. <laughs> and. I I just remember just feeling, you know, a little bit of hope because I was starting to give up after being there for over three and a half hours. I was like, I'm ne we're never going to get saved. So it was just a, really a relief when finally, finally we got saved. And I remember them saying, if you know, to if they, you know, to us to, to get up and, you know, we had to go through the hole and stuff. And I remember them telling him that, you know, I, I can't cause I can't walk. And I, uh, there was from them blasting, there was a pipe had burst. And so things had collapsed a little bit and there was water everywhere from the pipe bursting from the blast. And I just remember, uh, I had to drag my body with my, uh, left arm and my leg to, uh, get to the hole and, and they ended up pulling me out and rushing me to the ambulance. And I just remember them cutting up my clothes to see where I was shot at. And they took me to the, the hospital, was literally right around the corner with less than five minutes. And I just remember all these people just kind of shining lights on me and trying to check me out. And apparently I had a lot of blood on, on my head, like in my hair. So they thought I was shot in my head. And it was just, it was very intense and very scary. <laughs> Shining one of those lights was Dr. Chadwick Smith. He's a trauma surgeon at the Orlando Medical Center. I asked him, when was it he first heard that there'd been a shooting right on the hospital's doorstep? Typically, when I'm on call, if there's uh, what we call a trauma alert, um, I'll get a page. And that night, one of the emergency department residents actually called me on my cell phone and said that that there's been a mass shooting that we were going to be receiving over 20 gunshot wounds. The, the first really critically ill patients at about, you know, maybe 2.05, 2.06 a.m., they were brought literally in, in the back of, of pickup trucks, police cars, etc., basically just kind of thrown in a, a vehicle and, and brought here. Uh, and we got about 35, 36 patients in about that many uh, minutes, so a patient a minute. 
uh, and we're de- and you're dealing with those those volumes, um, you know, you really have to think on your feet about you know your, our goal is to save the most lives as possible. The nine patients that that died in the emergency department uh, were so gravely ill that I believe if there had been a five to ten minute transport time versus a literally a 30 second transport time, I believe that they would not have made it to our hospital alive. Uh, Because when they were brought into the trauma resuscitation bay, they literally were, you know, on death's door. I remember walking around surveying the emergency department, thinking to myself, um, you know, what am I going to do? Um, you know, and, and really at that, at that point is, is where you have to either say, okay, I can go sit in the corner and cry or I can do something about it and just start. And, and we just, we just went to work. And, um, I think that probably the most traumatic thing for myself and those of us in the emergency department that night was that a code silver, which is active shooter on the premises, uh, was activated. And we thought that, you know, we didn't know how many people were involved in this. Um, and we thought that there was someone in the emergency department, um, you know, as an active shooter while we were trying to care for these, this intake of patients. I, I did, I guess it did cross my mind is one of these patients, the shooter. Actually, I hadn't thought about that since, since that night. Dr. Smith's shift that night would be more than 13 hours long. After the nine patients died and after everything, you know, the active shooter had been neutralized, then there's the job of, okay, everybody that's, that's, you know, has either been taken care of because they were literally dying or they needed to go emergently to surgery. All the other patients had, had to be, you know, the ones that were still shot, but, but not, you know, critically ill. We had to go through all of them and, identify their injuries, make sure nothing was missed, et cetera, along with um, the influx of families that are looking for their, their, um, their loved one. And across America, the parents and loved ones of those at Pulse were waking up to the news of the shooting. One of those mums is Maria Wright. Some of the audio you are about to hear is disturbing and includes descriptions of violence and people in distress. We live in Miami, and for those who might not be that familiar with Florida geography, Miami is about four hours' drive from Orlando. And uh, my husband woke me up early, and he was on his way to play golf, and he said, there was a shooting in Orlando. And I immediately said, Jerry. And he goes, I don't think he'd have gone out because he was working late. Still, I texted Jerry immediately. Um, I I wrote, uh, what's going on in Orlando? A shooting, yes, two days ago, and now a mass shooting? What's happening? Call me. Of course, he couldn't call me because he was already lying on the floor of the club in his own blood at that point. Eventually, Maria, her husband Fred, and their eldest son made the decision to drive to Orlando. By 10, 
we decided to go to Orlando because we hadn't been able to get a hold of him. And he was the kind of guy that he called us every day. Uh, he would have never, the minute he heard the news, he would have called us to make sure we knew he was okay. So uh, we got to Orlando and they had set up a family reunification center at a hotel. And we walked in there and there were all these people that looked like zombies. I mean, you know, this empty look in their eyes, just wandering around. People kept bringing in food from, I think, every restaurant in Orlando. And it was just sitting there because nobody was touching it. And we walked up to, like, this check-in desk. Um, and basically said, we're looking for our son. And at that point, we confirmed he was at, he was at Pulse because we saw his car parked right by the door in one of the television shots. So we knew he was, he was there. And so we said this, we know we're looking for our son. Do you know for sure he was there? Yes, we saw his car parked. And then they asked us if we had any photos, and which is always kind of something that throws you when they ask you for something like that. And then they said we'd have to wait. So my husband uh, told me, I'm, I'm not waiting here. I'm going to go check the hospitals. You stay here and see if you find out anything. I, my older son had gone with us. And he was like desperate that there were no answers. You know, he kept saying, well, they have to know something. They have to tell us something. And they really, everyone had the same look on their eyes. I remember looking around and seeing everyone would kind of look away when you looked at somebody's, because I guess everybody was kind of hoping that mine will be okay, which means that yours might not, especially as the numbers kept going up. Finally, about 5 p.m., they said they were going to have a briefing. And my husband had called me to say, doesn't look good. I haven't found him. They don't have him in any of the list. And now they're telling me to go speak to the medical examiner's office. So he went off to do that, and I went to the briefing. And someone from the police department gets on a table and starts speaking to us. And then the realization that a whole lot of the people didn't speak English. So they brought a pastor up who spoke Spanish. And they basically said, we're going to read a list of names. If you hear the name of your loved one, step to the back. There are ambulances waiting to take you to the hospital to see them. And they started reading the names. And I kept telling myself, he's going to be the last one because it's a W. He's going to be the last one. And I suddenly also noticed 
the irony that I was praying so hard that my child be so terribly hurt and injured that he couldn't reach out to me. Because as horrific as that idea was, it was better than the alternative. And of course, they got to the end of the list and um, they didn't say his name. And I just told myself, okay, take a breath, chillax. And my older son, all six foot of him, turns to me and goes, what does that mean? But before anything I could even answer him, someone yelled out, if you didn't read their names, does that mean they're dead? And then, of course, pandemonium. I mean, people started screaming, a lady fainted, someone threw up. I mean, it was just, the room erupted in agony. And so the police got up again and using his big policeman voice said, please, please understand, we would do anything to have answers for you. We would do anything to be able to help with your pain. But, you, but there's protocols and the FBI has taken over the the investigation and there's we can't do anything about that so someone screamed out you mean they're just laying there it was just like i guess what hell must sound like crying and screaming and questions and i just turned around and hugged my Joe and I said baby Jerry's probably gone and my big boy just fell to the ground and I'm five foot so that meant I fell with him and some people came to help us and I just thought you gotta be strong gotta hold everyone up because you're mom and that's what I tried to do many hours away Sarah was waking up to the news that her best friend was missing I um, I live in Denver Colorado so I am a couple of hours behind Eastern time in Florida. Um, I woke up that morning to 30 missed calls, a dozen texts, tons of Facebook messages of people asking me if I knew where Drew was or saying, I am so sorry about what happened at Pulse. And I had no clue what was going on. Um, And so I opened Facebook And the first thing that had popped up was his mother, just a a video of her on the news begging, where is my son? Where is my son? And it would be a full 24 hours before 
we would find out that he was indeed one of the 49. Um, it was devastating. There is definitely a split line in my life between the last normal day and after Paul's. While Maria and Fred learnt of Jerry's death and Sarah of Drew's and Dr Smith battled to save lives in ER, I wondered how journalists in Florida dealt with the news that was coming in. My name is George Estevez. I'm a presenter, or, or an anchor as they call it here in the States, um, at the ABC station in Orlando, Florida. For George, the shooting felt very personal. You know, people talk about the attack being Latin night, being an LGBTQ plus nightclub, and... The fact that I'm Latin, I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community, of course you, you take it personally, but because of the job I did, because of the role I had as a presenter, as a journalist, as a storyteller, you almost have to figure out a way to, to, to put that aside, but at the same time you can't because it happened to my community, like my, my community, like both check marks, the Latin community, I'm Cuban Puerto Rican. The gay community, I identify as a gay guy. So, so you have this, this personal connection to the story that everyone else has a personal connection to as well because it happened in their community, but it's almost like it goes a step further and it was, it was really challenging to cover. Being so connected to the story meant that lots of people were now worried about him. I woke up to text messages, phone calls, and it was, how are you? Are you okay? Where are you? Where... Where's Enrique? That's my husband. Did you guys go out last night? And it was oh, so many messages from colleagues, from friends, from family. And I woke up to this and I was like, what happened? And sure enough, a couple hours prior, this, this massacre had happened, the shooting had happened, and work was calling and everyone was calling and turning on the continuous coverage, getting in my car and going to work. So you walk in the newsroom and all you see are people moving left, moving right, on the phone, screaming across the newsroom. And the phones were going and the texts were going and the emails were going and, did you send a crew? What's the number? I heard 20. Well, it's just gone up. Here's a news conference. It's now 50. And all these 50 meaning casualties at that point, because it was chaotic, controlled chaos, as most newsrooms are, but it was just facts and numbers. And, and, and I was thinking, Okay, these are facts and numbers, but these are these are people. And now this is the largest mass shooting in America at this point. But then I'm thinking, I'm standing at one point, I felt like I was standing in the middle of this newsroom, desks, chairs, people, and I'm just thinking, I was like numb for a second. Like, these are people. This is gonna change our community forever. I remember thinking that. This is gonna be different from this moment on, and you're thinking, this is it. This is the moment when Orlando changes forever. The story was just starting to become clear to George and journalists across America. But back at the Orlando Medical Center, survivors of the attack were just beginning the journey to come to terms with what had happened to them. Amanda Grau was shot four times. She spent more than three hours hiding from Omar Mateen in the club's toilet. You've made it out of the club and to the hospital, but what was going through your head at this stage? Just laying there in the ER and just telling him that what just happened, I just, I was, I was still in shock. I just, I couldn't believe it. I, I was scared. I was angry. 
I just wanted my mom and my dad and my brother. I just wanted them to know that I was okay because I had stopped texting. And I had remember at one point before that, my brother goes, Amanda, he goes, if you're alive, he goes, just please send a dot. And I did because they thought I was dead. And from then on, when I was in the hospital, just I just felt that the job wasn't done, that somebody was going to come after me. So I, uh, I, to this day, I'm, I'm scared. To, I'm scared of the dark. <laughs> and I never used to be like that, you know, going through something like that. Certain things, I always have that trauma and think about that for the rest of my life. And I feel bad because me and my wife, we have kids, but I have to sleep with the door locked because I'm scared. And I sleep with a nightlight because I can't, I can't stand being in the dark because it was dark and gloomy in the, in the, in the nightclub. And I feel so bad because if, God forbid, anything happens or somebody breaks in, you know, I feel bad as a mom because I'm, I have my door lock and I have my children out here in their room and with no, you know, locks on their door. So and I feel so bad, but I, I can't help it. In the same hospital, Dr. Smith's 13 hour shift was finally ending. I distinctly remember driving home. I remember it was very bright um, when I was driving down the interstate. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I think I was, you know, just, I don't know, what, what do you do? You just, you kind of, it was kind of like a robot. You know, my car kind of drove itself, and I probably cried a couple times in the car when it was quiet and I was by myself. And 33 and a half hours after the shooting, Maria and Fred finally had their son Jerry's death confirmed. My daughter was flying in from Atlanta, so my son went to pick her up at the airport while we went to the community center and waited. And around, I guess it was about 11.30, they came in and... There were fewer people left now. There was only... I mean, you kept hearing screams. And you kept seeing people coming out, you know, with teared eyes. And I mean, we knew we were just waiting to be told something we, in our hearts, knew. But hope is not that easy to shut up. Um, finally they called us and they took us outside and I remember having my heart just leap and go oh they found him they found him and they're taking us to see him and then we turned a corner and they, I saw they were taking us to one of those temporary buildings they'd run out of places to inform families So they'd brought in these temporary buildings. So when they led us into there, I knew that I wasn't going to get good news. 
So my husband and I sat down, we grabbed each other's hands and took a big breath. A police officer came in. She sat down and she just looked at us. She looked exhausted. And she said, well, you know, there was a shooting yesterday. And unfortunately, your son didn't make it out. I'm so sorry. And she got up. You could tell she was desperate to get out of the room. And I wondered how many of those she'd had to say. My husband and I held each other really, really tight. And I... For a second, I just thank God that I had my husband to hold on to. There was a chaplain and another officer. And they handed us Kleenexes. And they said, what can we do for you? And I said, I want to see my child. And they said, well, we don't know about that. But there's going to be a briefing. Um, We can take you to that. So after just being told our child had been killed, we were marched into a room. It, it, it was a, a like an auditorium full of people and all these dignitaries were speaking from the FBI and the city of Orlando and the Orange County and I don't know who all was there starting to brief us about the situation and my daughter and son came in the back of the room and I could just look over to them and shake my head and that's how I told my children their brother was dead. This is the pain of pulse for Virgin Radio Pride. After the attack and those awful days that followed, Orlando had a new challenge, recovery. George Estevez, at the time a news anchor in Orlando, led the first of many vigils. It started off as three young people wanting to do something around Lake Eola, center of town, very beautiful place, very serene, very calm, and it grew. And it was a Facebook invite, and they bought a hundred of those little Dixie cups and like some candles at the dollar store. They said, oh, we get 100 people, it'll be great. Well, that same day, that Sunday after, it was like, you know, 5,000, 10,000. Then Monday, it was just kept growing and growing to 
to go and do. And then they were like, police officers got involved and said, look, found out who it was. You can't do this. You, we have to have more time. We don't know if we're going to be a target. And then some community activists reached out to me and said, hey, I need some help. Would you read the names? They're, they're mostly in Spanish. I said, of course. Then I got a co-anchor of mine involved. And, and then he said, came back a day later, this is now 30,000 people. And then all of a sudden, it was 50,000 people in security and, and major news outlets covering it and live streaming and helicopters. And, and all of a sudden, you know, when you look out and you see what 50,000 people looks like. Say it with me. We remember them. A la salida del sol y cuando baja, los recordamos. Dilo conmigo. Los recordamos. At the blueness of the skies and in the warmth of summer, we remember them. En el azul del cielo y en el calor. And then the rainbow came out as the sun was setting. And it was just this overwhelming feeling. And I pointed up and, and Nancy pointed up at the rainbow and, and people, you can see the tears. And, and, and you just, you, you had this moment of, we're gonna get through this. This massive crowd of people, we're all gonna help each other get through this. And in need of strength, lift your candles. And together, let us say, one Orlando. One Orlando. Orlando United. For Jorge Estevez, it changed how he presented himself as a broadcaster. From that day, everything changed uh, as far as the way we all covered stories, the way I covered them. I felt more comfortable in my own skin. My style changed. My, my frankness changed. My honesty changed. Obviously, I was always honest to the viewer, but as far as just approaching stories from a more, a more real place, everybody, I felt, became an ally. People came out. I had mothers, fathers reaching out to me on email and social media saying, this was a rough couple of months for my daughter, my son. I now know why. They identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. People who didn't know know me or people who didn't follow my social media, they really didn't know I was out. But now I was out. So I suddenly was so fortunate to join others and become these figures of possibility of, you know, what it's like to be an LGBTQ plus member and it be totally like, who cares? Talking to George made me think of that vigil that I went to in London, Soho, literally 24 hours after this attack. And a couple of days later, there was another one I attended in Birmingham. And all you could feel on those occasions was nothing but love. And it has been such an enormous honour to talk to the five people tonight who were affected on that night. They are incredible. I mean, seriously, I have no words for how they've picked themselves up and recovered. I think now when we next get the chance to go to a Pride event, it will be about remembering and honouring members of our community, people that we've lost, and those on that night that suffered unimaginably. And there's one thing George said to me that I will never, ever forget. This man came out to destroy our community. Whatever that community was to him, it was everything to us. And we came back stronger. And that strength and bravery is something I've heard literally from every single person I've spoken to for this documentary on Virgin Radio Pride. Survivor Amanda Grau chose to do something amazing to honour her friend Christopher and the medical staff who on that night saved her life. Till this day, I don't know why 
God spared me, but he, he definitely did. And, you know, I, I got my second chance and I definitely don't take life for granted because we, we, as human beings, we tend to do that, take things for granted. And I definitely don't. I, I wanted to use my second chance for, uh, the greater good. And I ended up going back to school. Uh, I wanted to do something to pay it forward <clears throat> for the people that had saved my life. So I ended up going to um, EMT school, fire school, and then I'm about to start paramedic school at the end of next month. And Drew's legacy has been extraordinary. The Drew Project, prior to Drew's untimely death, was his screen name, his MySpace, his Instagram, his live journal, um, and it was his online persona. And so in many ways, Drew branded himself far before his time. Um, On my way back to the airport from Drew's funeral, I purchased thedrewproject.org. I was in the car with another friend and we were like, let's just have his namesake Maybe we can create a scholarship or do some kind of, you know, send information out about Drew and who he was and just have a, a place marker for him. And so from there, we kind of brainstormed what we wanted the organization to be and how we wanted to honor Drew. And he started the very first Gay Straight Alliance at his high school. And he was always such an ardent supporter and... Um, just very loud and proud of being a queer youth uh, when he was a queer youth and affirming queer youth as an adult. And so we we said, we have to do this. And we sat and we brainstormed and we figured out the first thing that we wanted to do was create a scholarship fund. The scholarships are called the Spirit of Drew Awards. And um, the scholarships go to LGBTQ youth, um, but it is for those students who are doing advocacy while studying. And so to date, we have given out $100,000 in five years. The second uh, item that we worked on was how do we help existing Gay Straight Alliances in Florida thrive? We have given out over $5,000 in mini grants to uh, Gay Straight Alliances to help them thrive, and that's to help them have a gay prom if they want, or go as a field trip to the Pulse Memorial to learn about uh, the 49 we lost, um, or to go have a, you know, a gay movie night. Whatever they want to use the money for, we support. Um, and then the final uh, part of the Drew Project for right now <laughs> is our um, Gay Straight Alliance Guide. Um, we actually took notes from Drew from when he wrote the instructions for his Gay Straight Alliance. And we have them in that um, in the guide. And we teamed up with a queer curriculum writer. And it is the most comprehensive um, guide of its kind in the world. It's his beautiful legacy, and we were just so proud of it. For Jerry Wright's mum, Maria, it was about a fight to try and stop an attack like this happening again. Omar Mateen was known to the FBI, 
He'd been on something they call the terrorist screening database. He'd been arrested for battery at 14. He was fired from a job for threatening to bring a gun to work and hurt his colleagues. Despite all of those things, Mateen was allowed a gun licence and a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Which meant two weeks before the attack, he could go to a Florida gun store and buy a semi-automatic rifle and a Glock handgun. He even tried to buy body armour, and the only reason he failed was because it was out of stock in his size. Immediately after Jerry's death, Maria didn't know these details. All she knew was her son had gone to a nightclub and he could never leave because someone was able to shoot him and 48 others. I received one of those blast emails from an organisation the Wednesday after Jerry was killed. And I responded immediately saying, my son was killed at Pulse, what can I do? And they answered back, thanks for signing our petition. And I responded again, uh, my son was killed, what can I do? And a human being got back to us and on July 12th, 2016, my husband and I were in Washington speaking to our elected leaders, asking them to do something about the gun violence. We're still waiting. But we're still trying to get people to realize the magnitude of the problem because it's only gotten worse. Over a hundred Americans a day are killed by gun violence. The numbers are astronomical. And there is no vaccine. And there seems to be a lack of willingness to accept the magnitude of the problem or even to take simple steps to try to stop it. And that's what we basically are trying to do. We're not trying to take anyone's guns away. We're simply saying there are common sense solutions we can take that will save lives. Omar Mateen was shot dead by the police at 5am on the 12th of July 2016. But from his actions sprang so much hope. From news anchor Georges Estevez being able to broadcast at his most authentic gay self, to Maria's unbelievable campaigning and Amanda's brave choice to work as a paramedic. And not forgetting Sarah's incredible charity work to honour her friend Drew. I'm Steve Denier, and this has been The Pain of Pulse on Virgin Radio Pride. Hearing stories about the Pulse nightclub shooting may have upset you, and you may want to talk to someone about how you're feeling. Samaritans is a registered charity providing support to anyone in emotional distress. You can call them free anytime from any phone on 116123. That's 116123.
The Pain of Pulse has been an Audio Always production. Produced by Ailsa Rochester.